0: G'day everyone. My name is Matt. It is good to be with you all. I get the joy now to tell you about that passage. But uh, before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, thank you that your word is exactly that. It is the word of God, the inspired word of God. And so we pray this morning as we open it and hear from you that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. We have confidence that you would do that. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we always have great hope for the future when we're young, don't we? As a look around this room, not many of us are as young as we once were. Uh, But we think political or social movements are going to bring about real and lasting change. Uh, uh, We think that our changes in government, which has happened today, that's the first I heard of it when you prayed about it. I didn't even realize it was a change of government. But we think... (laughs) I was writing a sermon. (laughs) We think they're going to fix all of society's problems. Uh, we think that um, the world is progressing towards a utopia where there's going to be equality and peace for everyone. Now, there is some, peace t- uh, some um, truth to some of these things. There are movements that have happened in the past that have led to real change, uh, even if it's not as much as it was promised. But things never seem to live up to quite the hope that we put into them. Governments fail us. Uh, political movements don't bring the freedom that they promise Our social causes don't end up really changing anything, and technology which promises to give us freedom actually ends up enslaving us. And I think the older we get and the more of life we see, the more disenchanted we can get, the more sceptical or maybe even the more realistic that we can get, or maybe we just get old and bitter at the world, and we lose the hope that we once had when we were much younger. Uh, now, that's all a bit abstract. It's a bit out there. Let me let me bring it closer to home for us all. Think about um, your own life for a minute. Uh, think about what your life looks like right now. Is this the vision of your life that you'd hoped for yourself? How you're living now, your life. Is that the vision you'd hoped? I think for most of us, we we probably hoped that our life would look a bit different to what it does right now. Or even if you have attained the vision of life that you had for yourself, how's that working out for you? Is it everything that it promised, or have you been left maybe a little bit disappointed? I think it's like the start of every new year, right? We always start the year with so much hope, so much hope that this is going to be the year I'm going to get a set of abs, and then in the words of one of the staff here, that which which will remain nameless, two year, uh, two weeks later I'm back eating fried chicken again, or you know Ted Lasso? Hands up if you watch Ted Lasso. A <laughs> few people are excited about that. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. But season one had so much hope. It was so, it was like, this is a new show that I like. I haven't seen a new show that I've liked since Seinfeld. That's how old I am. But I was like, wow, this new show. And then season two happens. It was rubbish. You can debate me later on if you believe that's true. The reality of life never seems to match up with the hopes that we have for it. And this is Australia. We live in the lucky country. Imagine for what it's like for most people in the world. Now, the question is, why do I bring all this up, besides maybe to depress us this morning? Well, it's because I want to take us back for a moment to the start of 2 Samuel. Right back at the start, where we have David, the man after God's own heart, who has finally become king. He is the one who will go out, who will fight the battles on behalf of the people. He's the one that God has promised peace and rest from their enemies. There's so much hope for the future. But now, as we've gone on in these weeks, as we've gone through 2 Samuel, and we get to the end now, all of that hope seems to have faded. We've not only seen the rise of King David, but we've seen his fall as well. And what this passage does in the conclusion to this book is remind us again that putting our hope in earthly kings and earthly kingdoms will ultimately disappoint us. They will fail us. What we need is a king and a kingdom that goes beyond this life beyond this world. Now before we jump in let me let me give you a bit of context. Um, The last three weeks of this series, uh, which included last week, this week, and next week as well, we're looking at the conclusion of the book of 2 Samuel. It's like the epilogue. Uh, And as Charles showed us last week, uh, this this section is in three parts, and the author has compiled them in what is called a chiasm. Now, last week, Charles took us to the center of that chiasm, to chapter 22. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at the two next sections out from that, which Jade read out. And then next week, Tim will take us to the outer two sections of this conclusion to the book. Now, these middle two sections, as you would have heard as we're reading them out, are focusing in on these mighty men or these mighty warriors of David's kingdom. Uh, These men have achieved some incredible feats uh, and they were honored by having their names written down for us. But what the author has done, and done so masterfully in this section, As he's weaved into these accounts, as we look back at these great achievements, you can't help but see that David's kingdom is not what it's supposed to be. At the conclusion to this book, at the end of King David's reign, the great hope of peace and rest from the enemies hasn't been realized. In fact, what we're going to see is that the great enemies, the Philistines, haven't been defeated. That the peace that God had promised has not come, but there is violence. And that in the end, their great king isn't quite as great as they had hoped. And so let's jump in. Let's have a look at these passages and we'll see what God has to say to us. And so if you've got a Bible there, open it up to chapter 21. We'll start in chapter 1 and then we'll move across to chapter 23. Now, all the way through 1 and 2, Samuel, the uh, there's been this constant enemy of Israel. Uh, it goes right back even before uh, the start of 1 and 2, Samuel, to the book of uh, uh, the kings. Sorry, or not the kings, of judges. Uh, the Philistines are the constant enemy. Um, they keep coming back. They never seem to get defeated. And the great hope of Israel is that when God gives them a king, it's going to be this king who's going to go out and fight their battles and defeat their enemy. But here again at the end of 2 Samuel, at the conclusion, again and again you get from the author that this hasn't happened. And so have a look at 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 22. What you get given there first is four accounts of battles. And so you get in verse 15, once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. Or in verse 18, in the course of time there was another battle with the Philistines. Or verse 19, in another battle with the Philistines. Or in verse 20, in still another battle. And it's the same throughout the rest of this conclusion. Another seven times uh, we read of battles between Israel and these Philistine enemies. The enemy just never seems to get defeated. They just keep coming back. I don't even know how they got anyone left to fight, but they keep coming back. The other thing you notice as you read through these four accounts at the start there is that all of them talk about Philistine giants Uh, They are described as descendants of Rapha. Now, Rapha means descended from giants. And as you look through these descriptions of these different giants, all of them have features about them that are meant to remind us back to the great giant, to Goliath. And so these are the different descriptions you get as you read them. One of them has a, a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. One of them has a large weight of the spearhead. Uh, one of the giants is taunting Israel. One of the battles takes place at Gath, which is where Goliath was from. And just in case all of that, you didn't pick it up, one of them is even named the brother of Goliath. All of these descriptions are used to point us back to in 1 Samuel chapter 17 with that famous account of David, David's defeat of Goliath, the Philistine giant. Now, the story of David and Goliath is a massive deal in Israel. And not just because it was a great story, which it was, and it was detailed so amazingly, but because really what you see in that story is this, the start of the rise of King David. He is the one who's going to go out into battle. He's going to be the one who fights on Israel's behalf and defeats the giants, the enemies of Israel. David really was Israel's great hope for the future. And you see that in the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. When Charles preached on this a number of weeks ago, he said, this is really the great height of the book of 2 Samuel. This is what God promised him. He says, I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and I'll plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel, I'll also give you rest from all your enemies. But as this book comes to a conclusion, the author reminds us that King David has not defeated Israel's enemies, that the Goliaths keep coming back, that the great hope for the people under King David has not been realized They still don't have rest from their enemies. Well, that's the first thing that you see in these passages. Next, um, turn with me across a couple of pages to chapter 23, because this is where it continues. Now, what's described here uh, continues on with what we've just been reading about uh, in chapter 21, but here the focus moves from the Philistine giants to Uh, David's mighty warriors and the achievements that they accomplish. Now, later on, we're told that there's 37 of these mighty men or these mighty warriors in total. Uh, These are David's elite soldiers. This is like the SAS troops, if you've seen that show. Pretty good show as well. But of these 37, uh, you get the three, like the three top guys. And what the author records for us in these verses is some of the great feats of these mighty men and so come with me have a look at some of them we'll look at from verse 8 now i'm going to call this guy jb because i can't pronounce his name but jb the tekamite was chief among the three he raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter now that's a lot of people for a soldier to kill in their whole lifetime but this guy's done that in a single day and he used one spear now that's that's pretty incredible stuff And so he becomes the chief of the three, of the 37. Now then there was Eliezer in verses 9 and 10. So next to him was Eliezer, the son of Dodai, the Oahite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamin for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. Now it isn't clear why the Israelites retreated here. Uh, maybe it's because they were outnumbered and so they, they retreated. Or maybe, and I like this one better because it would just be such a boss move if this is what happened. The way they were taunting the Philistines is as they looked at them and said, you guys are so lame. We're just going to leave one guy. The rest of us is going to walk away and he's going to take you all. And so, well, verse 10, Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The man killed so many people that his hand was literally fused to his sword, he couldn't ungrip it. And the rest of the troops only returned after the battle was over. You just imagine them all rocking up, and Eliezer's just standing there covered in blood, a bunch of dead bodies all around him, and he can't even let his sword go because it's just fused in his hand. They would have been talking about this for years at this incredible feat. And then there's the third of the three, Shemar. Now I reckon this guy was probably a vegetarian. And I'll explain why in a minute. He, I think he really liked lentils. Does anyone really like lentils? <laughs> Have a look at verse 11 and 12. It says next to him was Shema, son of Agi the Harii. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there uh, was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. They're like it's just a field of lentils, we're out of here. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, as in the lentils and struck down the Philistines. Now, the Philistines all band together for the attack. Israel's troops, they flee. But there's one guy, Shema, the vegetarian. <laughs> Don't know how he had the energy to do any of this, but he <laughs> stands his ground in the middle of the lentil field and strikes down the Philistines. Now, what a boss this guy is. These mighty warriors are just that. They're mighty. They do incredible things. But there's more. There's more that are recorded here for us. Um, now, it's not sure with these next slide if it's, it's the same three they're talking about, or if it's another three. Uh, but I think it's likely it's the same three that are mentioned above here. Um, but what do they do this time? Well, I love, this is a great story. Verse 13. Uh, During harvest time, Three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Abdullah, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now, this story most likely occurred earlier on uh, in David's life when he was on the run from King Saul. We've seen a couple of places in 1 and 2 Samuel where David has gone and hid in these caves. Um, and as he's hiding there, three of his mighty men, uh, come to visit him. Uh, but we're also told that in David's hometown, which was in Israel, Bethlehem, has been overtaken by the Philistines and they've set up a garrison there. Now a garrison is a, a large number of soldiers that are stationed uh, in a particular location. And as David's in this cave, he becomes thirsty. And his mind starts to, to think back over his life and he starts to think of his youth. We're Growing up in his hometown of Bethlehem, And there was a gate, and at the gate there was a well. And so David says, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now clearly, he's not actually wanting someone to go to Bethlehem and get him a drink from this gate. He's expressing a longing he has here as he's in this cave. But these three mighty warriors who have come to visit him take him literally. Uh, You can just imagine them looking at each other and going, okay. And so then off they go. And so verse 16, these three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Now just just think about what that would entail. So these three mighty warriors, they climb down out of this cave. They travel the 20 or 30 kilometers it would have taken to get from where this cave was to Bethlehem. They break through the Philistine lines of soldiers to get to the well. Two of them are probably still fighting off the soldiers while the third one's drawing water out of the well. Then they have to break back out of um, the camp, walk the 20 or 30 kilometers back to the cave, climb back up into the cave just so David can have a drink. These men are absolute weapons, aren't they? The things that they were doing. I love the way the author concludes it at the end there. In verse 17 he says, Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. These are the sorts of things they just did. And then there's recorded for us a whole bunch more. In verse 18 and 19, Another of David's mighty warriors kills 300 men with a single spear. In verses uh, 20 to 23, another kills the two mightiest warriors of Moab, which is another of their enemy. And then in case that wasn't enough, he goes and kills a lion. And in case that wasn't enough, he does it while it's snowing because that would be a bit harder, I'm assuming, than killing it when there's no snow. And then he takes on a huge Egyptian with a spear. Uh, Sorry, the Egyptian has a spear. All he's got is a club, but somehow he gets the spear off the Egyptian and then kills him with his own spear. These are incredible feats that are recorded here. And then the section finishes um, with the author honouring all of these mighty warriors, recording all 37 of their names. These men are heroes. They've achieved superhuman feats, feats that seem impossible to us, the sort of thing of, of legend and myth. These men were devoted to their king, serving him, whatever the cost. And in so doing, they achieve incredible feats. But did you notice right at the end, oh, actually not, not at the end, all the way through, you keep getting this refrain from the, the author. It says that they did not achieve these things on their own. Verse 10, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Or again in verse 12, the Lord brought about a great victory. These are incredible feats of strength and courage But ultimately, it wasn't because of these mighty men that they achieved these things. It was the Lord who brought about these great victories through them. But I I hope that as we were going through those stories and hearing of those crazy things that these mighty men did, I hope you were starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe you've just watched too much, I don't know, Game of Thrones or something, and you become desensitized to all this sort of stuff. But I don't know if you picked up on it, but all these exploits of these mighty men are just crazy violent, aren't they? Full of violence. Thousands of people being brutally killed, and then these men are celebrated as heroes. Now, we do need to understand this story in the context and the time in which it happened. But the fact still remains that these men are brutal and violent. And so again, here at the end of this book, as the author is concluding, what we are left with is a far cry from the promise of the hope of peace, which God had promised them. The kingdom is one marked by violence, not peace. Okay, let's move on to the third point. Now, although this section... Uh, is, is about the mighty men, uh, all the way through the sections, uh, we get these references back to King David. And once again, it's no accident that the author has done it this way. He has been very deliberate as he has placed them where he has. Uh, in all of the accounts, it's one of David's mighty men that is the hero, not David himself himself. Uh, in fact, David's no longer able to defeat his enemies. He actually to be rescued by his mighty men. And so come back with me to chapter 21, verse 15. It said, Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his mighty men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. Now this account comes late in the life of, of King David. He's not as, not as young as he used to be. few of us are. You know when you used to be young and you could go out and play sport and it, it was fine. And then you know you haven't done it for a long time. And then you decide, "I oh, yeah, I could do that still." And you go out and you play another game, and you realize that you're not as fit as you used to be, and that stretching is now longer, no longer an option anymore. That's this is David. He's not the warrior he once was. He's exhausted, and his enemy can see that. So verse sixteen, and Ishba'beno. One of the descendants of Rapha, remember that's one of those giants, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, that's one of David's mighty men, son of Zerua, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. The king who used to fight the battles and take down the giants now needs someone to protect him. From those giants. And then the account ends in verse 17. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel may not be extinguished. This is where David, the old man, gets his car keys taken away from him, (laughs) if you know what I mean. (laughs) David's no longer the great king that he used to be. Then there's the account. Of uh, the well. Remember the well where the the mighty men went off to get water for him? Well, look what happens when the three mighty men return. After they've risked their life uh, to get David to drink. Remember the, the effort that they went through, the great devotion and love that they'd showed to David to do this thing for him, to honor him? Well, look at how David responds to their actions. Verse 16. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out. Now imagine being one of those three men. After all you've just done, taking your own life at risk to go to get this water for David, and then you come back and you give it to him, and he just pours it out on the ground in front of you. How would you be feeling? Confused? Angry? These aren't guys you want to mess with, are they? But the sentence doesn't end there. It says, he poured it out. Before the Lord. Now, what's going on here? It's sacrificial language. It's David pours it out as a sacrifice to the Lord. It's a drink offering. Uh, These men had made the great sacrifice, risking their lives by going to get water for David. But look at how David responds in verse seven. He said, "Far be it from me, Lord, to do this." He said, "Is it not the blood of men who went at risk to their lives?" And David would not drink it. In other words, David says, I'm not worthy of this sort of devotion. Only the Lord is. Only God is worthy of that kind of devotion, of risking your life. And so he pours it out to the Lord as a sacrifice to him, to the one who is worthy of that kind of devotion. Even David knows that he's not worthy of that kind of devotion. Yes, he's the king. But he's just a man. only God is worthy of devotion like that. And then finally there's the last name in that list of the 37 mighty men that are recorded. now I didn't make Jade read out that list although I'm sure he would have smashed it but if you go as you go down through that list you get to the last verse to verse 39 and you notice who's the last Mighty man that's recorded there. It's Uriah the Hittite. Remember Uriah? The man that David slept with his wife, Bathsheba, and then to cover it up had him killed. Now, the author could have put Uriah's name anywhere, couldn't he? Could have hidden it in the middle, hoping we'd just sort of skim through it and miss it. But again, it's no accident that the author has placed it right here at the end. All of these mighty warriors had been devoted to, had shown great courage, had been faithful, and served David and his kingdom. However, ironically, in the end, the greatest weakness of David's kingdom was David. The greatest weakness of the kingdom was the king. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, yes, Matt. That's basically been the message every week. David points forward to the greater son of David, the true son, the king, to which David was only a dim reflection. And you're right. That is the message of this book. It's been the message every week. And so why do we need to hear it again? Why? You know why? It's because we keep forgetting. I keep forgetting. We keep putting our hope in other things, in earthly kings and kingdoms, thinking that our hope can be in those and they're going to be our salvation, or in our own little kingdoms. But all of those things will fail. All of those things will disappoint. And so once again, let me remind us of the true son of David, who was also the son of God and which David points us forward to the king who is called the prince of peace. Isaiah speaks about him this way in 9 verse 7. He says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. Grace City, this is the only one in whom we should put our hope the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated our enemies, who has brought us peace with God and is worthy of our love and devotion. But just as we finish up, I think it would be a mistake on a passage that speaks about these mighty men not to stop for just a minute and actually reflect on these mighty men of David. Because I think there is something that we can learn from them, something that we should follow. Because they served their king. They loved their king. They were devoted to their king, as imperfect as he was. These were men who were flawed, and they served a king who was flawed, but they still served him. But we serve the true king. And he doesn't pour out our sacrifice on the ground because he isn't worthy of such devotion. No, he's the one who poured himself out for us because he was the only one who was worthy. And it's his kingdom that goes beyond this world. He's the only one that's worthy of our devotion and our hope. And so no amount of sacrifice that we could give for him is too great. Uh, We can do hard things, courageous things for this king, for Jesus, because he is worthy of it. And if you do that, and when you do that, the Lord will bring about great victories for his kingdom through you and through me. And like these mighty men, whose names are recorded in one of God's books, ours will be also but ours will be recorded in the, the book of the Lamb's book of life. And so let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of that is useful and speaks to us. And we thank you for what we've been able to look at today, that it points beyond earthly kings and kingdoms to your Son, the great son of David, the son of God, the one who has defeated our enemies, the one who has brought peace between us and God, and the one whose kingdom will reign forever. Lord, thank you that we can serve him, that we can be devoted to him. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to put our hope in him and not in anything in this world? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.